night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It is Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Jason is off tonight. Thanks for being here. The good news is we have a really, really interesting show for you tonight. This is going to take uh, the paranormal and combine it with something that just about everybody loves, and that would be considered pop music or rock and roll specifically, but also pop culture. Our guest tonight will be George Case. He's an author, and he has a book out called Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture from 1966 to 1980. Uh, this is going to be a great, great topic. Um, we're going to be talking about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and movies and books. And, uh, you know, we all know that The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby uh, fell into that time frame, as well as the Amityville Horror, both book and movie. I mean, when you think about the 70s in particular, but starting in the mid-60s with what we would consider to be a cultural revolution, uh, which started with music, I believe, um, you know, there is a lot of there was a lot of flux. There were a lot of people exploring a lot of really interesting ideas, and we're going to have that conversation with uh, George Case tonight. He's written a, a bunch of books, and this is uh, the one we're going to be talking about again. It's called "Here's to My Sweet Satan: How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture, 1966 to 1980." It's Beyond Reality Radio. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Tonight we're going to be talking with George Case. We're going to bring him in in just a second and talk about his book called Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture, 1966 to 1980. There are a couple of things I want to mention because I was trying to come up with the name of the uh, the character <laughs> that Cal, who Billy Zane played, was engaged to, and... Um, Kate Winslet was the actress, and Rose Dawson ended up being her name. Although it wouldn't wouldn't have been Dawson early in the film because uh, she took Jack uh, Jack's name. Uh, he was Jack Dawson, if I remember correctly. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention in speaking about this Notre Dame fire, tragic tragic fire, is that there's been a uh, some reports of a connection, not necessarily a connection, but uh, some people believe that Nostradamus predicted this. And we haven't really talked about Nostradamus on this program at any length, but uh, we've reached out to a few people who are Nostradamus experts. And we're hoping to get one of them on tomorrow night to talk about this possible uh, pr- prediction by Nostradamus and what it, what it may mean if it, in fact, is what some people are saying it is. So we're working on that. Hopefully that'll be part of uh, tomorrow night's program if we can make it happen. But in the meantime, uh, George Case is our guest tonight. He's an author, and we welcome to the program. George, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for calling. All right, so um, let's learn a little bit about you first. This is a particularly short segment, so we don't have a lot of time. Um, But uh, you're an author. You've written about a lot of things. At what point did you decide you were going to write for a living? 
Well, I've been writing for years all my life, and I've had a number of things published since I was in my early, late 20s, early 30s. Uh, I tend to focus a lot on cultural history, cultural theory. So I've written about Led Zeppelin. I've written about rock stars of the 60s and 70s. And then writing about the occult in the 1960s and 70s seemed to be like sort of a logical extension because that's the specialty that I've developed over the years. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, there's there are a lot of things you could choose to write about. When you start writing about pop culture topics, um, there's kind of a, I don't know, there's kind of a mystique uh, about that, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's something that we're all part of, right? Like, everyone watches movies, everyone looks at TV, everyone listens to music, so it, we're immersed in it. But I think it's interesting to look into the actual nuts and bolts of why these things become popular or not or influential or not and let's go into the backstory of some of it instead of just letting it wash over us and consuming it let's think about it a little bit more because there's no escaping it for anyone that's alive these days we're all around it you know and you bring you bring up a great point about um everybody being exposed to it whether it's music uh, movies, uh, books, or other uh, forms of pop culture. What would you say is the most influential of those? I mean, I tend, I think I know what I what I, I believe it is. I want to hear what you think of the genres there. Which is the most influential? Well, these days now, I would probably say. I think it's the web. It's it's the internet. I mean, everyone is walking around with a phone on them. Um, you know, maybe 20 years ago, I would have said TV, and 40 years ago, maybe movies. Still, 50 years ago, it's changed over time with technology, right? But uh, today, I think we're all sort of wired into something. So, as the the media will change, but I think it's also important to think of the messages that we're getting through it, like what is popular, what kind of shows or books or ideas we're, we're engaging with over the years. I don't think anybody could have predicted how um, monumental the change would be with the digital age. I think that that was a, a complete game changer. It wasn't an evolution. It was a revolution. Um, so a, a lot of, you know, every, everything is kind of in play at this point. Um, does the, does the move to digital reduce or increase the impact of any of these forms, music, television, movies on, uh, on us as, as members of what we would consider to be pop culture? Yeah, I think it, it it's made it so much more accessible now, right? Because we can carry it around with us, and there's so much that's available out there. That has grown exponentially, whether it's text, like the printed word, whether it's music, songs, like even just going on something like YouTube, you can find so much obscure stuff, like an old record or TV show that you'd forgotten about and thought you would never come across. Well, now it's all there. So we've got this huge repository in front of us for everyone, and it's sort of fragmented all of the public like it wasn't just that you used to have three tv channels and that everyone had to choose between <laughs> them now there's a million tv channels right it's not just that there's a pop chart and a country chart and an r&b chart there's there's 20 there's an infinite number of music charts that people can get into so there's so much it, we can specialize our our taste so much because of the range that's out there electronically it's no longer just radio or tv or books it's this whole medium of the internet that's that really like you say it's a revolution we're still in the middle of it yeah george before the break i'd asked you what your opinion was as to the which of the me, different media we 
in pop culture uh, may have been the most influential. And you kind of you talked about the digital age today, which I, I think you're absolutely right. We can't even compare with how influential uh, digital media platforms are. Um, and you mentioned movies and TV. And do you think that music was more influential in this time period that we're t- going to be talking about, 1966 to 1980? Yeah, I think back then, I mean, obviously you had the, the baby boom generation, which was a huge demographic wave, and their big thing was rock and roll. Like, they were the ones who made the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all these people really popular. They were these huge entertainment forces at the time. So, yeah, and I, I don't know if music still has the same sway now. There's obviously still a lot of music stars, but at the time, uh, the music industry was huge dollar dollar wise in a way that it probably isn't now because so much is streaming and people are accessing so much stuff free but the reason rock stars became rich and famous was because of the way the music was being retailed back then so in the 60s and 70s yeah i would definitely put uh music as a pretty important medium for just conveying ideas and social change and and as an index to how people were thinking how young people were thinking for sure and I think of two forces now. Um, the first of the two uh, is kind of pre this era we're going to be talking about. However, it was still influential, and that's Elvis Presley. And then, and then the Beatles uh, in the early, uh, early '60s uh, through um, you know early 1970, basically. Um, it's hard to compare any other pop culture phenomena with those two. Uh, musical influences. Elvis changed everything, and then the Beatles changed everything again. What is 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 the platform? Was music responsible for providing that change through these artists, or are these just two very very uh, distinct cases of uh, pop culture influencing people? Well, I think. The other factor here was economics, too. It was the fact that a lot of young people, for the, it was a very prosperous time. It was this big post-war economic boom. So you had a lot of young people with discretionary income. So instead of waiting for their parents to buy stuff, the kids had the opportunity to buy their own entertainment, which was rock and roll, Elvis, Beatles, all the people who came after them. So, yeah, it was they were huge because of a wider situation. But on the other hand, you have to hand it to the individual artists and say that, yeah, they were also influential, they were special, they did have something unique that they were bringing to the market that other artists before them just weren't bringing. So there was kind of a, a perfect wave of what the audience wanted and what the artists were delivering at that time. And with Elvis and the Beatles, yeah, you are talking about some pretty big pretty big talents and pretty pretty big game changers. Yeah, and I and I, I think you're right. I mean, economics and um, cultural mood at the time, um, you know, obviously has a big part to do with it. But you know, like we just like I, I'm not sure what the numbers were, but last night was was it last night the the premiere of the last season of Game of Thrones? Okay. Oh yeah. A big cultural, a, a pop cultural uh, event, um, and Game of Thrones is one of the most popular television shows to uh, exist in the last eight years. Uh, but I don't see people walking around dressed up like Game of Thrones characters. But everybody wanted an Elvis haircut, and then, then everybody wanted a Beatles haircut, and to wear Beatles style clothing, and to, you know, and everybody wanted to become a musician. I just look at those two pop culture phenomena and think they're kind of unique in the whole history of what we're going to be talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that's that 
people don't appreciate as much too is that because there's so much out there now um a number one tv show like game of thrones or a number one musical artist well they're actually in terms of absolute numbers they're they're a lot farther down they're they're not selling as much as the beatles even a, sh- a show like game of thrones is not being watched by as many people now as something like the Beverly Hillbillies in 1965, just because there's so much other choice out there available. So in terms of popularity, it may be popular than everything else, but it's not, in terms of absolute numbers of people tuning in and getting into it, it's not it's not the same as it was when there was less choice available, when you had the whole country or the, the whole society sort of united in this one taste for this one artist or one event. Yeah, and, and that was going to be a, my next point, too, when we talk about the digital age as being so influential. Uh, and I remember, you know, growing up with three, and at one point, 13 channels to choose from on my television, three radio right. stations to choose from on my radio, and that was pretty much, and a newspaper, and that was pretty much all of the information and, and entertainment I was going to get. Um and I always found something to do or listen to or watch. Now with 400 channels on my television and infinite number of ways to listen to music, I, there's nothing that appeals to me. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit of a paradox, exactly. isn't it? I mean, we're sort of swamped with choice now, and it's, it's easier just to, to, to back away from it all. Like it, It's hard to make that and to get all the people you know united behind one particular taste. So I don't think there's any artist or any one movement nowadays that commands that that can unify the population the way they did back 30, 40 years ago, pre-Internet. Let's uh, let's set the stage because um, you know most of the folks that would be listening to this program probably even if they were alive during 1966 to 1980 uh, probably don't remember much about it. So um, you know they they look at, uh, at at America and culture and and the devices we carry around in our pockets that, that do everything for us and have a difficult time uh, picturing what life was like during that time. So set the stage for us. What was the what was our culture like at that point? Well, the thing I get into in the book, Here's to My Sweet Satan, is that there were there was so much change happening politically and socially. Um, there were so many crises and controversies going on. These were the days of the student protests, of Vietnam, of Watergate, of the energy crisis. There was a lot of problems affecting society, and there was a lot of divides even back then between different strands of society, but it was all being reflected. Instead of where everyone could go online and sort of post their own thoughts. It was all being reflected back at them. There was still that big monolith of culture, which was Hollywood movies, uh, you know, radio stations, the music industry, the publishing industry, which was still pretty big back then. So people had to, it wasn't what people could say for themselves, but the kind of art or the entertainment that they could choose. And when you only had so much selection at the time of what kind of material you wanted to get into, the kind of stuff that was being produced was a good indication of what the public wanted or how the public was responding. So I think when you look at the history of what was coming out in this time, what was popular, it's a good indication of the public mood because that's what the public had. They couldn't make it for themselves. They had to take it from the industry that was out there. I know one of the things that you talk about in your discussion here, and we will get into it obviously in, in much detail. Um, but when you look at the late sixties into the early to mid seventies, you're looking at a period where, um, entertainment took a particularly, 
uh, I'll use the word evil, evil turn, even though I don't mean it in, in the strictest definition of that word. Um, you know, you mentioned Rosemary's Baby being very popular, which is still one of my favorite movies of all time. Sure. Um, you know, and, and shortly after that, we saw The Exorcist become mm-hmm. a very, very popular book and movie. Uh, and then shortly after that, the Amityville Horror made its oh, yeah. debut as a book and then a movie. Um, you know, it seemed like there was a bit of a fascination with these um, satanic uh, thing, uh, references and uh, these stories that that hinged upon that part of what we would consider to be the darker side of humanity. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's a big theme here. And And one of the things I try to suggest is that different people who were making this stuff, whether they were musicians or filmmakers or authors, some people were sort of more serious than others about it. Um, for some people, it was just kind of a gimmick, and definitely for Hollywood, a lot of people were just getting in on the bandwagon. And I go into the book about, there's a lot of stuff that came in to just cash in on uh, The Exorcist, for example, or The Omen. There was a lot of stuff that really wasn't all that great, but it was just kind of cluttering up the airwaves and the movie theaters at the time. But on the other hand, there were some people who were really seriously into it and were really trying to change minds with what they were producing. But definitely between from the late 60s and all through the 70s, it, uh, the occult or Satan or witchcraft, demonology, that was just good business, right? The paranormal. Um, it did undergo a wave, a commercial wave at the time that for people trying to keep up with trends, uh, you almost couldn't, you couldn't miss out on it. Everyone had to get in on it. I even get into uh, things like uh, toys, even Count Chocula cereal, uh, Frankenberry cereal, like all that stuff. Everyone who wanted to sell something had, had to introduce an occult angle to it. Scooby-Doo, it was just so popular across so many different media that the, the trend caught on wider than anyone really could have expected. But the big pillars, the big tent poles, were things like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and The Omen and The Amityville Horror and then first works of Stephen King. But there was so much else that came out around that time that was sort of trying to get in on the same wave. The um, you know one of the things we we have talked about at length on this program is the Amityville haunting, and some contend that that was a product of the success of The Exorcist. And, uh, you know, uh, if you're familiar with the uh, Warrens, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren noted paranormal investigators. Some Mm -hmm. say that those two um, saw this commercial success and decided to take a different angle with it. I guess we'd call it a reality angle and uh, look to do kind of the same thing. Um, I don't know if your work got into that kind of thing specifically, but I think you've kind of touched on that when you talk about, you know, you needed an occult angle, you needed a a paranormal angle to be commercially viable. Right. Yeah, I mean, in the book, I'm not, I, I make a point, I'm not trying to prove or disprove anything here, but I think when you talk about something like the Amityville Horror or some of the other phenomena I go into, like the Bermuda Triangle, for example, Chariots of the Gods, I, I do think it's important to introduce the other side of the story, that at the time, yes, it was really popular, people got into it, it's a scary story, scary movie, but there are a lot of alternate explanations to what happened. And in the case of the Amityville Horror, I think that's been pretty convincingly shown to be that it, w- it was a bit of a a hack work on the part of the author, Jay Anson, who wrote it back in 77, and then I don't think it ever, anyone's ever been completely proved that 
there was a haunting happening at that place in Amityville, Long Island. So there's a lot of the stuff that when you tell the whole story, some of the, the mystery goes away. It's still interesting. It's still fascinating. And I think it's still important that people were as impressed by it as they were. But I don't want to approach it from the point of view of just too, of being too credulous. Same with The Exorcist or The Omen and all that stuff. Like Interesting stories, but there is another side to it that has to be taken into account that maybe uh, takes away a little bit of the mythology from it. Our guest tonight is George Case. We're talking about a cult in pop culture, 1966 to 1980. He's written a book about a cult. Here's to my sweet Satan. Uh, George, this is a short segment. I wanted to pick up on something you said because you mentioned the Bermuda Triangle, another topic that we talk about frequently on the program. Um, mm-hmm. And I also saw somewhere in your notes the television show In Search Of. It was oh, in yeah. the, it was in the early seventies, and that show is so is one of the shows that influenced me the most and kind of helped me determine what my career path was going to be. Um, and frequently we have guests on the program that say the same thing. Uh, but that was a product of the same time frame that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a fascination back then with the sort of natural paranormal, not just the devilish stuff and the witchcraft, but also things like Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, uh, Ancient Astronauts, Bermuda Triangle, the Mothman, uh, all that the unexplained, I think, was a big category that it fell into. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. I grew up in the same period, so I was interested by it. Um, I found when I was researching it, though, that, of course, at the time and ever since, a lot of people have come up with uh, alternate explanations of it. And the Muta Triangle is one of those ones that just hasn't really stood up to a lot of serious scrutiny. It's interesting to think that there is that area out there where ships and planes might disappear, but from all official accounts from the U.S. Coast Guard and other science-based organizations, they say, no, it's just a statistical average that if anything's been lost there, it's just that's because of the amount of traffic that happens in that area off Florida, between Florida and Puerto Rico. So, um, What's interesting to me is not whether or not the Bermuda Triangle is real or not. It's the fact that people thought it was, that people looked into it, that people created a whole sort of culture around it, including books and movies and everything, that there was a lot of people who, whether or not it is objectively real, were prepared to believe in it. Yeah, I mean, there are some stories that still baffle people uh, regarding experiences in the Bermuda Triangle time slips and and some other things that are still hard to explain and we talk about those on the program but i find and we have just a couple minutes here before our top of the hour break but i find that uh, as we talk about this and we start linking these ideas and things together i never really noticed at how um how much um there was these interests, whether it was a cult in, in these pop culture things, uh, started to add a little bit of fuel to the fire of what we would consider to be paranormal legends, Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot. Uh, we talked about the Bermuda Triangle. Um, you know, there's so many of those that really started to be noticed uh, in the early 70s, I'd say. Sure, and I think what happened, too, and I get into this in the book, is that a lot of them were kind of reinforcing each other. Like, if you were interested in Bigfoot, you were going to come across about the Bermuda Triangle eventually, too. It was on the same section of the bookstore, right? So if you could, if you were prepared to accept one, you almost had to kind of take an interest in the other because they all seemed equally mysterious. And it, there was a suggestion, too, from a lot of them that something was being hidden, something was covered up, it's, 
people were sort of distrustful of authority and of the official line on anything. So at the time, if you were prepared to, if you couldn't take the government seriously because of Watergate, you had to wonder, well, what else are they not telling us? Which may have been something like uh, cryptozoology, like the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, the Mossman, and then uh, the Bermuda Triangle, or ancient astronauts. So there was a lot of intrigue to it all, and I think the underlying view was, well, what what's being covered up here? Maybe we're on the verge of some some big discovery that we've just never encountered before. So at the time, because so much was being questioned politically and socially, I think rationalism and, and conventional science was just another avenue that people were starting to doubt. And, of course, you made reference to uh, Eric Von Daniken's uh, book and then the following movie, uh, Chariot of the Gods, which was another very influential film in my life um, and a lot of mm-hmm. people's lives because it did open that whole ancient alien discussion. Right, right. I mean, it, it turned people on to a lot of things about you know, history and anthropology that maybe they hadn't really thought about before. Now, again, it's, you can't avoid the fact that a lot of scientists and historians didn't really take it seriously and, were, and examined what von Daniken was saying and said, you know, this doesn't really hold up, there's, there's not enough real evidence here, this isn't serious scholarship. But you can't discount the fact that millions of people were getting into it and found and in some way responded to it. I think that's more important socially or culturally than whether or not it's, it's factually verifiable. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but the fact that it's a story itself that people got into, I think is pretty important, whatever the real basis of it is underneath. George, um, let's talk music here. Let's, let's switch the topic to things like um, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin. I mean, there are a lot of people that thought there was some evil coming out of those rock bands during that time. We'll talk about some of this, cite some of the specific examples, but was this stuff really evil or was this just an overreaction? I think it was pretty much an overreaction, but like we were speaking about earlier, how influential rock music was at the time, that was a pretty big reaction to have. There were millions of young people, millions and millions of young people getting into this music, so it didn't take much for the artist to put some sort of, small reference to the occult or something spooky in in their music that it would just sort of go like a ripple through this vast public that they were reaching. So even if you go back as far as uh, in 1967 when the Beatles had Aleister Crowley on the cover of Sgt. Pepper, it was just a little gesture on their part. They weren't really into it. They just thought it was something cool to do. But, I mean, that record sold 20 million copies. So there's 20 million pictures of Aleister Crowley out there in people's record collections. And then when the Rolling Stones put out Sympathy for the Devil, again, just it's a song. They were musicians. Uh, it's a great song, classic song we've all heard. But there again, it's another reference to the devil that's coming out. And when you get into Led Zeppelin, who were extremely popular throughout the 70s, putting on um, uh, sort of these obscure runes on their covers. And uh, Jimmy Page was... By, by his own admission, interested in the occult, and he uh, at one point was living in one of Aleister Crowley's houses. Um, you know, it's hard not to respond to this for the public that was so fascinated by it. It didn't take much for the musicians to mention something like that, that the public could get into it and run with it. And in some cases, obviously, they took it farther than the musicians ever intended. For example, um, KISS. A lot of people thought KISS stood for Knights and Satan's Service had nothing to do with the intentions of the band, but that's what 
people were prepared to project their own feelings on that. And even the title of my book, Here's to My Sweet Satan, while that was supposedly something that you could hear in Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven when it's played backwards. And again, the band always disowned it. They said it had nothing to do. They were, had no intention of putting backwards messages on their music, but people were so fascinated by their mystique that they could read anything into it at, at any speed or in any direction, and, and they were willing to take something occult from what was there. I was going to ask you about the backward-played music, because there was a period there where every album that came out from pop uh, musicians was put on the turntable backward to see if there was some kind of hidden message there. Was there ever anything there, or was this all just a product of our imaginations? Most of it was imaginations. I think eventually some bands knew that they were, that uh, people were going to do that and would put stuff on there deliberately, but uh, it, mostly it was just the audience kind of hoaxing itself. I mean, even with uh, the Paul is Dead thing, which came out uh, right. when the White Album came out in 1968 from the Beatles, there were people trying to f- decipher clues in there that Paul McCartney had been killed, and that had nothing to do with the Beatles' intentions. And then they took it to uh, Led Zeppelin with Stairway to Heaven. It even went on to, um, I think, Judas Priest in uh, one of their albums from 1978, and an Ozzy Osbourne album. So it was it was happening a lot, but the the artists themselves always said if we really wanted to put backward messages on it, we the first thing they would say is go buy more albums. They wouldn't put on anything so mysterious <laughs> or dark. So it's it's a good example of how the audience themselves, the public can kind of fool themselves based on a, a little bit of information coming from the performers, from the musicians themselves. What role did a band like you mentioned, Ozzy Osbourne, um, uh, or even someone like Alice Cooper, who whose antics oh, yeah. on stage were known to be somewhat, um, you know, I'll say cutting edge, but uh, I'm not sure which <laughs> edge that is. And everything, yeah, yeah, I mean, how much did that play into all this? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, with Black Sabbath, they were laying it on so heavy with the uh, you know the song Black Sabbath and War Pigs. They were putting a lot of occult imagery in their music. And Alice Cooper with those epic stage shows with the guillotines and the baby dolls being crushed and the noose and the execution ceremonies. I mean, they were really pushing the envelope, for particularly for the time. I mean, music and, and heavy metal music in particular has got a lot more provocative these days. But at the time, you have to consider that was pretty shocking for uh, by 19 the early 1970s have groups long-haired hippie groups playing loud heavy rock guitar and singing about satan and dead babies and halo of flies and war pigs like that's pretty uh provocative at the time so again the audience heard that and took it far beyond what the musicians were really intending in some cases like the where with people like Alice Cooper or Black Sabbath, they kind of knew they had a good thing going when they had it, and they were willing to milk it. And if you talk to them privately, they would have said, no, this is just a job, this is just our act, this is a show, and we know that the public likes it. But there's really no telling how the public is going to take it, and often they sort of expanded on the things they were getting from the music from the stage shows. Now, was it was it Alice Cooper? I, I don't remember. Or was this just urban legend? Didn't one of these artists bite the head off a bat on stage, or was that... Well, that was Ozzy, and he Ozzie, really did okay. do that. Um, someone threw a, a bat on stage, which sort of went immobile, and Ozzy thought it was a, a toy bat and bit it. But So he really did have to get uh, rabies shots, I guess, for it. But again, a lot of this turned into good publicity, right? And 
for particularly for rock stars, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So anything that makes them look controversial or dangerous or or somehow provocative, they're going to take and run with it. Um, even Kiss said they put out comic books in the 70s, which was supposedly printed in their own blood. So <laughs> they, they made a lot of hay while the sun shined. And if people were going to respond to them in that way and think that there was something dark about it, they were savvy enough to to go with that and to, to play it up. I think even Jimmy Page said that, and I've got a quote from him in the book, like he knows how much the mystique matters. He wasn't going to blow it now, and that he didn't want to undercut audiences' expectations, that if they were getting something like that from his music and buying the music, well, he wasn't going to disabuse them of any illusions. Now, I know I know some of this gets into um, the time frame past what you've covered in the book, 1980, um, but heavy metal itself has always seemed to have had a, uh, whether it's a natural connection to a, the occult or it's, it's, a, it's a contrived one, I'm not sure, but there seems to be a, there seems to be a lingering connection between heavy metal music and, and this type of discussion. Um, was that born in, in this time frame? Yeah, definitely through the 70s it kind of started. Like, I mean, rock and roll has always had that little bit of an edge to it, but I think with uh, Zeppelin in particular and Black Sabbath, definitely Blue Oyster Cult's another one, um, it started to become a real accepted genre within rock and roll or a subcategory, and particularly with the heavy type of rock. So, And I get into this a bit in the book, like post-1980 when you had Metallica and Iron Maiden, um, Megadeth, Merciful Fate, Candlemass, Wasp, like all these people were really laying it on thick with pentagrams and inverted crosses, but it was almost as if they were just taking what the earlier artists had established and were just sort of turning the volume up on it. Same type of music, only a bit heavier, a bit faster, a bit louder, and same type of occult imagery, only just more blatant. Like look at Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil by 1984, right? Like they were putting pentagrams pentagrams right on the album cover so if it worked in, for one generation by the next generation they were even just turning it up even more so but it's definitely a, a staple theme of heavy metal rock for sure george that song uh beatles off the white album of course uh helter skelter uh was known to be or cited to be an inspiration for charles manson and his acts of uh hatred and cruelty um, in the Manson family, um, you know the Manson family murders, and then also the Jonestown massacre. These are all were all headlines during the period that we're talking about here. How much did things like that contribute to all of this? Oh yeah, I have a chapter of that on the book. In the book, I mean, it's not just that it was pop culture and, and entertainment and fun stuff. It was really having an impact among the real world. Actually, and people were being killed and dying. I got the Jonestown massacre. Uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, who was a real convicted killer. Um, he had he had watched Rosemary's Baby. He claimed to be influenced by satanic forces. Um, Manson himself had all kinds of you know weird occult connections, not not in any real serious way, but definitely there was a, a link there between what he believed and what he was responding to. Um, there was, and then of course back in, when you go into uh, the '80s, you get into things like uh, Ricky Castro out on Long Island, the Say You Love Satan killers. Uh, there was, it was having a real impact on people's lives. It wasn't just fun stuff and 
stuff that we were getting from pop, pop culture. And unfortunately, some of it did turn pretty dark and into real crimes. Another thing that was happening in, in uh, popular entertainment and pop culture at the time was some pretty interesting television. Things like, and I'm not exactly sure where this falls in the timeline, but things like The Munsters and The Addams Family and even Dark Shadows. Um, you know, this fascination uh, permeated uh, what we saw on network television as well. Yeah, well, I was going into stuff like uh, some of the TV movies at the time, and then there was The Night Stalker with uh, That's right. Karen McGavin. So yeah. that was a big popular thing. And again, it was all about sort of showing people investigating these weird legends, but bringing them into the kind of contemporary reality. Now, the Munsters and the Adams Family were sort of earlier on in the 60s, and they were kind of like for comedic, comedic effect. But by the time of the 70s, it, it was being taken a bit more seriously. And there was always a question hanging over what was being investigated. Is this real or not? Or is there any truth to these things? Like, are they just superstitions? Or is there some underlying reality? And with all the made-for-TV movies at the time, like Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is another one. Sort of a classic. From one of my period. favorites. That's one of my favorites. Don't Be Afraid classic, of the Dark. Classic yeah. movie. And again, Race with the Devil. Another That was a theatrical movie at the time. But it was the same idea that everywhere you turned, whether it was the big screen or the small screen, you were getting hit with these images of of the occult that were being taken kind of seriously. It wasn't just a joke, and it wasn't set in an old Transylvanian castle in the Middle Ages. It was always taking place here and now among ordinary people, which I think made it a lot more credible because it seemed to be... It, it made it seem as if it could be existing alongside our ordinary reality. So it really uh, messed with a lot of people's heads at the time. Yeah, that Don't Be Afraid of the Dark was uh, a made-for-TV movie. It's a very, very difficult one to f- catch anywhere. Um, you know, I've been looking for it for years, uh, and I think you can actually buy it on DVD or, or Blu-ray, but if you're looking on any of the services like Netflix or Prime or even on YouTube, you just can't get it. You can't find it, and it's one I've been looking for for a long time. That stuck with me. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's classic. I mean, the one thing I, I kind of keep repeating in this in my book is that whether or not it's serious or whether or not there's any basis in reality, these are pretty effective entertainments. Like, Black Sabbath is a great band. Uh, the Exorcist is an excellent movie. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is truly scary. Now, maybe there really aren't any things like little goblins living in your house and going to abduct you, but they do a pretty good job of, while you're watching it, convincing you that there could be. So whatever else it is, it was a good time for quality entertainment. We're talking with George Case. We've got to jump to break here. We're going to continue the conversation on the other side of the break. But, George, uh, you've got a website and stuff. Where can people look for the book and uh, get more information about your work? Uh, I've got the, the book is available on Amazon, so you can always find it there. I've got an author page, and I also have, a, have an ongoing blog, George Case blog at wordpress.com. And I know you've got some links there up there on your website to the show, so if people follow that, they'll get a hold of uh, all my writing and my various, uh, the other books I've put out. George Case is our guest. We're talking about his book, Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture, 1966 to 1980 um let's get back to the music part of this discussion george um you know we often hear beatles uh we often hear rolling stone when we have these kinds of discussions we hear led zeppelin 
Um, some of the other groups we've already talked about, Kiss and others. Um, but are there some that maybe not so obvious that had a, a bigger role in this, or is it just these I would consider to be kind of mega groups that really uh, were were uh, exhibiting this? Well, there's a lot of groups getting in on it at the same time, um, and I think a lot of groups like The Doors may be another example of right. who were kind of exploring the dark side. Um, and you pick out individual songs by different acts, like uh, Born Under a Bad Sign by Cream, I think that's from 1968, uh, the Graham Bond organization. Now, there's a guy who was part of the British blues scene, but he actually considered himself or believed himself that he was Aleister Crowley's uh, illegitimate son, so not a real successful group, but definitely a guy who was out there sort of conveying this uh, occult ideas. Um, even ACDC with Highway to Hell, a very popular band, right, obviously, right. but people attributed all kinds of occult ideas to them. Um, so there, there was a quite a few other groups. There was even a group uh, called HP Lovecraft, which came out in the early 70s, kind of a weird space rock group, I guess, but they were, they were named after the horror writer. So at the time, it was almost inescapable that any time you turned on music, you were going to get some sort of spooky or mysterious or paranormal ideas coming to you through the medium of rock and roll. Alice Cooper, we talked about. I mean, like I say, a lot of times it was just it was a gimmick on their part, but it it did ripple outward among the the audience that was there. And once David again, Bowie, he, he's saying yeah. about uh, Aleister Crowley on one of his songs. Yeah, and once again, you know, the time frame of uh, the bulk of the book is 1980. Um, but have we seen this taken to another extent with people like Marilyn Manson? Or and I, I probably can't even name some of the more uh, appropriate uh, band names as uh, for this discussion. But you know, has it continued to move to an extreme? Oh, yeah. I, I think they, they, with all of heavy metal, like we were talking about, they do kind of, there's a formula to it, and a, a lot of the more recent groups, like Avenged Sevenfold, Cradle of Filth, uh, Merciful Fate, Wasp, Exodus, Venom, I mean, those people were really putting it out there, um, taking the stuff that Black Sabbath did and just amping it right up. So, yeah, and, and they're getting pretty nasty. It's not personally for my taste. I sort of draw the line at Judas Priest or Metallica or somebody, but definitely each generation of of hard rock groups seems to be just pushing it a little further. The music is louder, faster, and the themes are even more dark. And apparently there really have been some of those groups, like in Europe, who really did get into serious devil worship and weird kind of uh, cult affiliations. So what started off as kind of just an act for people like Alice Cooper for some of the later groups and the lesser-known ones, they really were taking it seriously. They were living it as well as singing about it. Your uh, The time frame in your book is 1966 to 1980. Let's talk about 1966 for a second. Was there an, a pivotal event in 1966 that made you start there? Uh, the first thing I started with in the book was that on, in April of that year, it was about 53 years ago this week almost, or last week, uh, Time magazine put out a cover where it said, Is God Dead? It was the first time the magazine didn't put an actual human face on the cover. So you can imagine the impact that might have had on the newsstands if everyone's going to their local library or their bookstore, and the first thing they see is, 
red letters against the black background, is God dead? Like, that's pretty confrontational for 1966. And I think that was almost like the ground zero of when people started doubting conventional religion, conventional reality, conventional forms of faith and belief, because if God was dead, well, that left a lot of room for a lot of God's rivals and the the other superstitions that had been ignored by conventional religion. So I sort of consider that as the starting point uh, in 1966. And also, that was the same year that uh, Ouija boards started being retailed by Parker Brothers. They'd always been around for years before that, but here they were becoming really commercialized. And then the next year, just early in 1967, Anton LaVey founded the Church of Satan. So there was a whole wave of stuff just within a few months period where suddenly the occult and devil worship and the paranormal were just confronted with, uh, were just put front and center in the public consciousness. Let's go to our listener line here. Um, this is John in Gainesville, Florida. Hi, John. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. Um Will like to talk about ACDC, blues, you know, all these modern-day bands talking about the devil and stuff like that, but one of the great folklores is Robert Johnson, who has great songs like the Graveyard Blues, Hellhound on My Tail, and talking about the devil. Absolutely, yeah. I I reference him a little bit in the book. Like, he was one of the early blues masters, the pioneer of the blues. And he had stuff like, uh, yeah, Hellhound on my trail, if I had possession over Judgment Day. So, and he he had that whole legend about the uh, selling his soul to the devil, which got later translated to something Led Zeppelin supposedly did. So, yeah, when it comes to the occult in music and in guitar based blues music, Robert Johnson, you have to give him a lot of credit. Thank you for that uh, call, and that's a great observation, John. We appreciate you listening in Gainesville. Um, is there a correlation between volume and um, uh, suspected or uh, implied <laughs> occultism here? In you other words, the louder the, the music? music? Yeah, the louder the music. Is there a more a natural tendency to um, attribute some occult uh, traits to it? Yeah, well, I think as with everything else, every other type of medium, just as the the volume, the the impact, the sensory overload becomes heavier, the occult the occult themes are harder to miss. Like with something like Led Zeppelin, with Stairway to Heaven, it starts off acoustic and then ends up kind of hard rock. So somewhere right. in there, there's a mysterious, possibly occult message that people responded to. But when you get into something like uh, a Slayer or Slipknot, like they're really, it's the guitars are so heavy, the volume is so loud that it's kind of impossible to miss what they're singing about. Merciful Fate, Candle Mass, all those people, like it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty blatant what they're doing with with their music at that point. In your book, um, do you take a look at? Uh, I know you mentioned Watergate, but is there any? Are there more political implications in in any of this? The big political implication that I can see and that I get into is uh, that the occult kind of contributed to the rise of 
the Christian right, at least in the United States, because there was that whole phenomenon of uh, Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, which was sort of taking biblical themes and the idea of the apocalypse and end times and giving it a kind of relevance that a lot of people hadn't really thought about before. But that was a huge selling book, and that did uh, promote a kind of Christian evangelicalism, which really took off and had a huge political influence in the United States and continues to this day, I would say. So by making the Bible and religion and traditional forms of faith where there was kind of a, a good guy, God versus the devil, and making that so relevant in in the popular mind, a lot of people did respond to that politically, and it was reflected in the voting pattern. So absolutely, it, the occult permeated and reverberated outward into real real politics. It wasn't just fun and entertainment and movies and music, but it did have an impact on who was running the country, basically. Um, some folks in our chat room have, have mentioned uh, Stevie Nicks as an artist uh, who has claimed, I think, claimed to be a witch or be involved in witchcraft. Uh, is that part of this discussion as well? She, yeah, I know about Stevie Nicks and, and the, the rumors of her as being sort of a, a white witch, I guess. Um, I think that's an example of the audience projecting a lot of things on what the artists were doing. It's For her, it was probably something that she mentioned once or twice. I don't think it's something that is a big part of her career or her work, but it's what it's, it says more about we as an audience want to get from our, our favorite musicians more than what the musicians themselves were doing. And, you know, nothing against Stevie Nicks. She's talented. Fleetwood Mac are a great but great band and good luck to her but i think it's interesting how much we as the listeners want to get something from her career that maybe she hadn't really intended us to receive so much um we're going to run out of time here in just a few minutes i want to just take briefly a second here and talk about the other uh books that you have written that might be of similar interest maybe not about occult but certainly musicians uh because you've done some work uh in addition to what we're talking about tonight yeah, I've done a couple of other books on Led Zeppelin. I had a biography of Jimmy Page come out, which gets into into his own occult uh, interest, including into Aleister Crowley, which that's sort of a starting point for what we're talking about here. Like, even Page has admitted, I was into it and I liked it, but I didn't put backward messages on the music. Um, and I've got a book called Led Zeppelin FAQ, which also delves into this, the occult connections, real or not, in Led Zeppelin. And another book called Out of My Heads, Out of Our Heads, sorry, Rock and Roll Before the Drugs Wore Off, which is about rock music and the drug culture in roughly the same period that we're talking about here, like 60s, 70s, where it was Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, Pink Floyd. And that, again, had a pretty big impact on how we think today when so many musicians were singing about being high or promoting some or another form of psychedelic experience. Uh, one other thing that's a bit off topic, but it is uh, pertinent to um, things being discussed today, is the documentary about Motley Crue. And I know you have an opinion about it because you wrote about it. Um, oh, a, yeah. lot, a lot of people seem to like it. A lot of people are talking about it. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I saw it the other night. It's not bad. I mean, the thing about Motley Crue is that as we were talking about with other heavy metal groups, they're kind of following in the footsteps of work that other people had done already, whether it's Stones or Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath. Um, I like some of the Motley Crue songs, and it's not a bad movie, but I think the story has been played out 
by better artists before them. I mean, sex and drugs and rock and roll was not something that was invented by rock by Motley Crue. If you go on, if you were on tour with the Stones in 1972 or Zeppelin in 1975 or even, you know, the Beatles in 1965, you're probably going to see a lot of debauchery then too. So it's not something that Motley Crue invented. And I think by the time they were doing their thing, it was, it was something that almost everyone was doing, including Wall Street traders and sitcom actors. So, you know, nothing against Motley Crue, but it's, they're not my favorite act. And I think a lot of other bands did that same thing better and first. Um, we are going to be giving away a copy of the book from your publisher. Again, the book is called Here's to My Sweet Satan, How... The Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture, 1966 to 1980. We're going to take um, uh, the third caller on our, our listener line at 844-687-7669 to do that um, as we continue our conversation here for a couple more minutes with George. Um, since we're on the idea of uh, music-related uh, biopics, what about uh, the one that caused quite a stir last year, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, the, the uh, look at Freddie Mercury? Well, I think Queen are a great band. Um, they've got—I mean—they've got a huge catalog of excellent music. Uh, the movie itself—I think it's very hard to tell a whole story of a rock band that was around for ten years or more and condense that into a two-hour movie. I, I'm a sucker for rock and roll biopics, but I always—if you're into the band at all or the artist at all—you're going to find something that just didn't make it into it. You're going to say that technically was wrong or that didn't happen or they didn't use that kind of guitar or he didn't look like that. So as a fan, you're always going to be able to find little nits to pick. So I'm sure there's going to be more rock and roll biopics like that, like Bohemian Rhapsody and like the dirt about Motley Crue. But if you're really into the band, it'll never seem to do them quite as much justice as you think they deserve. Did I see that there is one or there was one being made about Elton John? I yeah, I can that? believe it, sure. Yeah. I mean, he'll be next. And again, yeah. there's a lot of music there and a lot of story. Um, but it, it's sort of down to, do they have the right guy to play him? And can they really condense that whole story, that whole life into two hours that includes all the, the best anecdotes and the best music of of one career? Like, that's going to be hard to do, but I know there's an audience for it because these artists were so huge in their time and they're still... They, have such big followings today. So if someone was to go to your list of books on your author page, um, is this the one you recommend they start with, or would you recommend they start somewhere else? Well, Here's to My Seat, Swayton is my most recent book, so and I think they'll find between all of them some some similar themes about pop culture and, and movies and music. I'm coming at it from a lot of the same a lot of the same perspective, but here's my sweet Satan I would start with. That's the one that's widely available, but I've got other ones on Stanley Kubrick, on Jimmy Page, on Led Zeppelin, rock and roll, so whichever catches your fancy, they're all uh, they're all available. They're and, all for sale. And uh, they're on Amazon, and uh, your website, which has your blog, is georgecaseblog.wordpress.com? Correct. That's where I am. All right. Well, George, it's been a fascinating discussion. I thank you so much for joining us, and I think it was kind of a last-minute thing, too. Um, But uh, I really enjoyed it. Hope you'll come back sometime. Excellent. Well, thanks for having me. 
Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.